welcome to Against the Odds. I'm Jan Powell, and in this podcast, I'm asking some extraordinary people what made them winners when the odds were stacked against them, and how did they overcome those life-changing obstacles, and what have they learned along the way? All our guests have been affected directly or indirectly by HIV-AIDS, and we'll be finding out about the challenges they've faced and what inspires them to strive for what they believe in. I really thought of art as being like music, the, the music that I studied as a young person, as being about expression, about just you know, getting things out, about you know, having a full life. Uh, it was about beauty. And at this point, I began to think about how art was, yes, about beauty, but it also was about action. That was our guest today, David Gear, who calls himself an artivist. In other words, an arts activist. He's that rare being, artist, writer, academic and activist, who crosses traditional boundaries with absolute ease. He started his career as an arts critic in the San Francisco Bay Area and later founded the Art and Global Health Center at UCLA, the University of California in Los Angeles. Deeply influenced by seeing friends succumb to AIDS in the 1980s, he's convinced that art can change behavior and attitudes, and he's created and curated dozens of exhibitions and projects that shine a light on key public health issues. I spoke to David at home in Los Angeles. Hello, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, David. Um, it's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. David, you write, you teach, you create, you curate, uh, you promote, you persuade. How do you find time to do so much? <laughs> well, like most people, I wake up in the morning, you know, with ideas bristling in my head and I have to do something about it. Uh, and sometimes as I get older, I do feel tired on some days. There's, there's that as well. But I'm sure it's no different from billions of people around the world who get up and do their business. I'm not sure that everybody wakes up bristling with ideas. I don't think that's how I describe myself in the morning. You're clearly a morning person. I am a morning person. You're right. Well, look, let's let's just talk about you a little bit, um, this morning person. Um, you grew up in Syracuse in New York State, and your family was very artistic, musical. Is that right? Well, I think that's fair to say, but I, I think maybe more salient is to know that my parents are both farm folk. They grew up as farmers, and so they uh, appreciated education. They thought it was important. When they moved to a, a, a larger village than the one that they grew up in in northern Pennsylvania, when they, when they moved to Syracuse, outside of Syracuse in a small village, uh, they encouraged all of us, there are five of us, to uh, participate fully in the life of that town and the life of the school and as a result, I think each of us ended up going in a different direction artistically, but we were all influenced by the arts for sure. It was the kind of household where, you know, somebody was getting ready for band practice and you could hear their horn playing in the back room and somebody else was practicing the piano for their lesson that was coming this afternoon and somebody was reading a book and, you know, all those things were going on around us. Uh, and as number four, I was definitely very much influenced by what was going on with the three ahead of me. And then later on with the, the one who came behind as well. So what attracted you to dance? Were you already interested in that as a, as a young, as a child or as a young person growing up? Actually, I was more focused on music. Uh, I played the piano. I sang in choirs. Uh, I loved everything about the musical world. And at one point really wanted to be a, a conductor. I was imagining being an orchestra conductor. That was the, the future I had laid out for myself. 
what happened dance-wise was that when I was in high school, I started to dance in the musical productions that we were doing at school. And that was fun for me. I enjoyed it. Uh, and it also, it, it, it took the kind of uh, jangled edges of this young boy who was a little bit, you know, too much a morning person and started to smooth things out a little bit. It was good for me to be physical. And so when I went to college, I was focusing on music and I knew that I wanted to discover other things as well. And so along the way, I took my first modern dance class. And from taking that one class, I, I found myself drawn further into that world and went deeper and deeper in it until the dance world was, was drawing me in even more than the musical world. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I guess for a, for a boy to get into modern dance, you know, as a, as a late teenager is, is possible. It's pro is it... it Easier than for a for a girl, perhaps. It's the most maddening thing. There aren't so thing. many of you wanting to dance. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's the most maddening thing for, for young women that, you know, they've been dancing since they were five and working hard at it and really committed to it. And then, you know, in waltzes, some guy like me at age 19 or 20 and starts taking his first dance class and suddenly he's like being cast in the, the show. It's so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> and it also says it's something so about the skill level of, of most young men dancing that, you know, there's a lot of spirit and passion, but maybe not as much technique at the beginning. Oh, we've just been talking to somebody on a, on a, one of our pod, one of the podcasts. We've been talking to John Montoya, who is a, um, uh, a young man who is walking around the world to raise money. But he also, at a certain point in his life, was passionate about dance and got into a very prestigious dance school in, a, uh, in Mexico and spent three years devoted to it and then suddenly decided, nope, he wasn't doing it anymore. But um, one of the things he said was that he found that he could really express himself through movement, which is perhaps why he's now doing this great project to walk around the world, that somehow using your body as a vehicle for expression, for art, for artistic creation, sets it apart from any other uh, medium. Do you, does that resonate at all? It does, very much. Uh, you know, there's no question that I've, I felt uh, freed by working through my body and also because I found that the musical world was very tense for me. Um, I, I went to a music school and, you know, as, as a, a college-age person, and there were probably, you know, 100 people playing in their practice rooms next to me. And sometimes I'd listen at the wall and I'd think, oh, they're so much better than I am. I, I was the best in my little town, but <laughs> I'm not the best anymore. And so I, I felt a lot of pressure and tension around it, whereas I, I didn't around dance, partly because it was new to me and partly because, uh, you know, I didn't plan to do anything with it. So it wasn't like I had been dreaming it for a decade. Uh, and, you know, partly it's physical endorphins, you know, that... Anybody who is a jogger knows that you start out thinking, oh, I'm never going to run today. This feels terrible. And then, you know, a quarter of a mile in, it's like, oh, it's starting to lift. I'm starting to feel better. <laughs> it's like, oh, my day is opening up before me. So, you know, it, it, there's, there's something to be said just for the... It just makes you feel really good. It does. It, or it can, at least. Yeah. It, there's that possibility. And then, of course, it's, a, it's an incredibly intriguing art form, too, because it is you know, uh, arguably the most ephemeral of arts. I mean, if you're a painter, you know, it's a process. And so, you know, you're applying paint and maybe you're using oil paints that don't dry right away. And so there's a long process of creating that canvas. But once you've decided that it's done, it's like a fixed thing and you can hang it on the wall. Whereas with, with dance, it's literally in the moment or it's in the transitions or it's in the making itself. 
And so it disappears as quickly as it gets, as it gets created. And you know, that's unfortunately a, an aspect of, of dancing, which I think is frustrating and difficult for people who devote their lives to choreography because you know, sometimes it's discounted in, in, as far as its importance. But on the other hand, it's also incredibly new and fresh all the time. It always feels improvisatory, even when it's something that's been rehearsed over and over and over again. David, when you left home, you went to the other side of the world. You went to India. Would you like to tell us that story and, and why it's, it really is against the odds for you? Well, it certainly was an adventure I hadn't planned for. And I literally hadn't planned for it. It was just out of college. Uh, I hadn't prepared myself to, to take a long sojourn, a three-year sojourn to India. And two things happened within the space of just a week or two, it seems. And one was that I received a postcard from a friend who was in India. Uh, this was a dear friend from college, Leslie Kennedy. Uh, she had gone on a fellowship to South India. She was living there. She was working in a small college called Lady Doak College. And she'd just gotten wind that they were opening up a position for a man to have that same fellowship the next year at the men's college, which was next door at a place called American College. And so she wrote me a postcard and she said, you know, th this fellowship is opening and I thought of you. So I said, wow, what do you know? I hadn't really contemplated that before. And about that same moment, I was taking a dance class. It was actually a choreography class. In that class, which was with a woman named Lucia Glugoczewski, she's a, a composer. Uh, she worked closely uh, with other choreographers, and she was teaching a, a music for dance class, essentially. And so in that class, she was giving us exercises to do, and she saw that I was more and more interested in rhythm and parsing the, the intricacies of rhythm. And one day she took me aside and she said, oh, you have to learn about South Indian dance and music because it's all about rhythm. You'll, oh, you'll wow. be so drawn to it. So, you know, oh, those two things happened within a close space. I put them together in my mind and I thought, well, all right, I'll apply for this thing. And so I did. And as it turns out, I had, I'd been a religion major as well as a, a, a music major. In fact, I graduated in religion, not music, from my college. And I had taken one course that was about Hinduism and Buddhism. And that was enough to, to kind of give me a way into thinking about what it would be to live inside another culture, to live inside a culture that was so different from my own, to be open to it, to be open to exploring in that culture, and with hopefulness that I would be embraced sufficiently that, that uh, you know, I, I would be appreciated and understood as a foreigner uh, as opposed to blocked and kept out. And in fact, it was a very gracious environment that I ended up in, in this uh, South Indian city, the name of which is Madurai. It's in the state of Tamil Nadu and required you know, the, some acquisition of Tamil language, which is something that I focused on uh, in the summer before going to India and then pursued during the time that I was there. I know Madurai because I've actually been to Tamil Nadu and Madurai is one of the places that I visited there. And it, that's an extraordinary coincidence because um, it's really not a town that's on the tourist trek. It's, it's, it's a city, but um, it's most famous for that giant temple in the middle of it. This is huge... Um, but beautiful Hindu temple, which is just stunning. Yeah, I remember. I remember visiting that temple, and I think it was the first time I'd been into a uh, an Indian temple, and just blown away by it, by the scale of it, by the decoration, by the 
ah, yes, it, it's slightly overwhelming. And then by this large and slightly lonely elephant that seemed to be standing in the inner courtyard, um, waiting to bless the visitors who, who, who came through the temple. But what an extraordinary place to end up. Could there be anything more different? Perhaps not. <laughs> I love, by the way, that that memory comes back for you. Uh, and, and it is extraordinary that we both know that town. Of course, if we lived in India, we would be like, oh, Madurai, of course, you know, my friends are from mm. there, or, you know, I visited sometime recently. But interestingly, as you pointed out, it's not a place that many travelers go. Most travelers stay in the north of the country and miss the South, which is extraordinary. Uh, so, you know, I have many images in my head that are parallel to the ones that you were just describing, Jan, uh, thinking about the, the temple goparams, these amazing towers that are built uh, at the, the four directions of the temple. Um, you know, thinking about the, the perambulation that you can witness, people walking round and round the temple as part of their, their uh, religious devotion. So yeah, I mean, it was a, a beautiful city to be a part of. And you know, it felt like an overgrown village, but I, th I think that the numbers, population numbers are something like a million people if you count the, the broader region around it. It does feel like a town, but it's, yeah, it sprawls. So you were there to learn dance and music? And so I was really brought in to, to be a teacher. But of course, it was ridiculous that I, as a 21, 22-year-old, was going to be you know, teaching graduate students in the, the um, English literature program. But I was assigned to teach what, something called ethical studies. But I was given permission to do what I needed and wanted outside of my time as a teacher. And so for me, because I had grown up in music and had gotten so interested in dancing, I decided to study both. And so I began with a, a Bharatanatyam class, that's the South Indian traditional uh, dance form. <laughs> and it was goofy because I'm six foot and a little, and I was dancing next to, you know, eight-year-old girls who were about three feet tall. <laughs> and of course, they were way better than I was, you know, because they had absorbed so much already in their classes. And I was, you know, kind of glumping along. But little by little, I started to understand more about how the art form worked. So that was, uh, uh, you know, certainly a cool thing for me. So what did you do when your three years in India were over? During the time that I was uh, there, my last days in India, I started applying to graduate school in the U.S. And I found a, a really wonderful program at the University of Hawaii in ethnomusicology, music and anthropology together. And it was um, actually such a beautiful place that I think about going back there. I've, I've gone to visit many times, but I've, I've thought about living there because it is an extraordinary place. In 1985, you arrived in San Francisco, planning to get into journalism, I believe. But that was an extraordinary time when that area was finding itself uh, to be the centre of a new and frightening epidemic. So can you tell me what it was like to be in San Francisco at that time and, and, and also tell us your second Against the Odds story? Well, you know, what was happening for me during the, the time in Hawaii, transitioning then back to the mainland of the U.S., is that I was coming out as a gay man. And I had been exploring, I'd been thinking, I'd been feeling, you know, feelings that were leading me in that direction, but I wasn't able to, to actually, you know, kind of get it and get myself and reflect on who I was until I had that time uh, in Hawaii. And it was during that time that I met my first boyfriend and fell very deeply in love, and he lived in San Francisco. So that was my good reason to, to fly from Honolulu 
when I had mostly finished the master's program that I was in there and to, to come back to the mainland. And, you know, San Francisco is a beautiful city. I don't know if you've ever been there, Jan, but, but also that it is a place for creativity. Uh, more recently, we, we think of it as creativity in relation to software. But it, it honestly, at the point that I was moving there in 1985, was a place that I thought of as being the, the apex of musical art, but also dance. And it's a place for new dance and for new creativity in dance. And I was getting interested during that time in being a newspaper critic. And so I, I got the, the taste of what it's like to write, to see a performance, to write about it that night and to see it in print the next morning and how exciting that was. So I wanted to do more of that. Um, so I'm arriving in San Francisco for a couple of reasons. One is to, to witness art. One is to be with my boyfriend. And what I really encounter in 1985 is the AIDS epidemic. Uh, and of course, the, the, the traces, the difficult traces of it everywhere. Uh, it was early on in the epidemic. It had been identified as an epidemic as early as 1981. But in 85, we still didn't quite know what was causing it or what was going on and who was affected by it. And why did it seem like so many gay men were affected, but other people too? And maybe we should pay more attention to that. Uh, so all of that was unfolding. Uh, and one of the things, one of the places where uh, the epidemic and my life were coinciding was around creativity. I was going to see performances most nights of the week, and little by little it became clear that most of those performances were about HIV. Uh, new dances that were being made that were, were memorializing people who had died or who were, uh, that were meant to get us angry and, and active and trying to face the government and trying to get act, action going on the governmental side. You know, one day through a friend was introduced to some people who were putting together the Names Project quilt, which many people have seen pictures of, if not seen it in person. Uh, it's a memorial quilt to people who have died of, of AIDS and AIDS-related causes that was started in that mid-80s period and finally was uh, you know, shown, finally was shown, was shown for the first time, I think it was 1987. Uh, and so I became a volunteer, you know, worked in the media aspects because I was a journalist. So I, I uh, conglommed onto that part of the, the project and began to realize that activism could occur through the creation of art, these quilt panels. And the quilt panels were made to be like the size of a human body. So it was like, you know, all these bodies laid out on the Washington Mall, for example. Wow, And the yes. visual impact that that made. So that was really a turning point that, that your career took as a result of seeing how that kind of acti activism could, could have such an impact. Well, I put it another way, did it have such an impact? But you felt that there was potential oh, for impact. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to admit because of the kind of musical upbringing that I'd had, that I really thought of art as being like music, the, the music that I studied as a young person, as being about expression, about just you know, getting things out, about uh, having a full life. Uh, it was about beauty. And at this point, I began to think about how art was, yes, about beauty, but it also was about action. And so the, even the notion of, of art's activism, about the, the things that art could accomplish, became at the foreground for me during that period of time. Did you lose friends? Did you lose close friends during that period? Did it affect you personally? I can see how this would have, you know, you could have been drawn into this 
this this movement, but on a personal level, what what happened? Mm. Well, it did affect my my dearest friends. Uh, you know, I have three people I think of as my angels now, people I lost during that period of time. Uh, one was Bill Huck, who's a, a musician and critic, uh, somebody whose work I really appreciated and somebody whose friendship I really appreciated. And Steven Steinberg who was a key person in the San Francisco Performing Arts Library and Museum, and a brilliant guy uh, who uh, you know, was a chronicler of the creative world in San Francisco. And Joe Lowe, who was a boyfriend of mine and who uh, was a choreographer and creator and spiritual person and whose death I uh, accompanied in Texas. He'd gone home to visit over a Christmas in the late 1980s and he became very ill while he was there. And so I, I flew in and was at his bedside in the hospital as he died. So, you know, it, it's, it's like wartime. You know, there were so many of us who were young ourselves and we were witnessing the deaths of, of people who were our age. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm speaking of this as being something that I intimately cared about, but I also wanted to explain that I'm an HIV negative person. And so I, I'm an ally of the many people who were ill and survived, and also yes. people who were ill and who died. Uh, and yeah. it was during this period of time that I, I came to think, you know, this is what my life should be about, that my life should be about uh, activating uh, various art forms and thinking about how they could intervene in the AIDS epidemic and how I could be there for my friends when they needed me and also be there in memorial to them uh, after they had passed, as many of them did. It must be an extraordinary time to look back on. So intense, um, and really not that long ago, is it? It's, what, 30 years ago that, that, that this all happened. Um, well, Jan, Jan, I think, I think it's important actually to, to, to make a point, though, that it's not that it's over, uh, and of course it's not, but now the amazing thing is that we have phenomenal medications and, and medical regimens that can be followed, and we have so many ways to prevent HIV. So, so there's all this good stuff happening on that side so that you know, many of my dear friends are living with HIV now, and they're having fantastic lives, and they're going to live as long as I do, maybe longer. So, so there's that. But you know, it, it's not true everywhere in the globe. And it is something like, you know, 40 plus million people who are infected and 40 plus million people who died of HIV, which we, you know, we're not busy thinking about right now because we're in COVID territory. So we've got a whole other thing going on. But, you know, just the, the scale of the epidemic, I think, has to be recognized and, and we need to be reminded of it. I need to remind myself of it, frankly. Yeah, it's interesting what you say, because on the one hand, people live happy, healthy, fulfilled lives with HIV, and and yet um, there is still so many people who don't have access to those uh, antiretroviral drugs. Why is it so difficult to actually end this epidemic, given that there are ways to treat it, there are ways to control it, there are ways to stop uh, to stop HIV spreading? Why is it still so difficult? I'll give you one word: stigma. You know, I think back, you've reminded me now of my dear friends who died. Um, you know, my, my friend, former boyfriend, Joa, who was dying in that hospital in Texas, he was the subject of so much stigma in the hospital, it was, it was shocking. 
Now, this was the early time of the epidemic, and so a lot of people didn't have information and they didn't understand. But imagine nurses and doctors who were stigmatizing him, who were making him feel guilty, who were uh, you know, not being compassionate to him in his final days. It was a horrifying experience. And you know, that was long ago, but the stigma that he was experiencing in the hospital is an echo of all the kinds of stigma that are still going on in places around the world, including next door to me, you know, I mean, you know, things that happen here in Los Angeles where I live, but also in other parts of the world where, um, you know, the acceptance of, of people who have HIV is very low. Uh, so I, I'm just going to come back to, to what you asked. What is the reason? Stigma. If, if not for stigma, people will get tested, people will get treated, people will be on regimens that they, they need to be on in order to keep good health. Um, but because of stigma, people don't want to get tested and, and don't want to find out because it's too scary, you know, to, to be identified as someone who's living with HIV might be something that would would feel as though it, it uh, would put you in a bad light. And so it so is on account of that and that alone that, that we have this problem. So a lot of your work is, is counteracting that stigma. Is that one of your Absolutely. major objectives? That, that's what I'm trying to do. It's, it's, there's no one recipe for doing that, of course, for getting rid of stigma. But everything that, that I do project-wise within the article Global Health Center, which I run at, at the University of California in Los Angeles, uh, or through the project Make Art Stop AIDS, everything is about trying to, to provide information, to normalize, to uh, instigate compassion and identification for people living with HIV. And I love so, that title, uh, Make Art Stop AIDS. It's, it's, couldn't, it couldn't be clearer, could it? I mean, that's absolutely what it's about. Um, can art stop AIDS? Well, you, you know, there's some people uh, in the world, I think of a woman named Anna Halperin who died recently at the age of 100 and something. Uh, she, she's a dancer and choreographer in the Bay Area. She took a spiritual approach to this and she said, well, listen, there are things that we can do ritualistically that will heal us. And she, she wasn't really suggesting that, that, you know, you could heal HIV by doing a dance, but she was talking about uh, the ways that we can solace ourselves or that we could come into a better relationship with ourselves in the world th through dance. That isn't actually the, the approach that, that I find myself taking. I find myself taking uh, an approach which is more about uh, trying to eliminate or the word I like to use is banish, to banish stigma, to get rid of it, you know, to get to the other side of it. Because if we get to the other side of it, then we will test and we will treat and we will uh, uh, put ourselves on a path toward health. How can you tell if it's working? I mean, when you, you see your... Um, I mean, you've done an amazing range of artistic endeavours which promote safe behaviour or which promote people discussing and coming, uh, being open about their condition. How, how, how can you tell when that's actually working? How do you, how do you judge that? Well, I should say at the outset that it's obvious I'm an arts person. So, you know, arts people tend to look you in the eye or, you know, see whether you as a viewer, audience member are vibing with the work that you're seeing or, you know, you listen for applause or you read the review in the next day's paper. I mean, all those things are clues to how people are responding. But because I live in the world which has uh, uh, more trust in public health and in scientific studies, I partner with people who come from those fields. I partner with good people at the University of, of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and good people who are at UCLA working alongside me. Uh, and they help me to design 
ways to, to test. So, so, you know, as an example, we have a program that we call the Sex Squad, or our space multiple intervention peer education AMP, right? But Sex Squad is the way everybody knows it because it's a catchier title. Yeah, I've seen and one the, or two the main... of the films of that. It's amazing. It really is. I advise anyone to go and have a look at some of the work you've done there because it is so arresting and, and it's just, yeah, eye-opening. What it is, of course, in, in brief, is that it's college students, you know, usually 19, 20-year-olds who are performing for 14, 15-year-olds in ninth grade, which is a year when in California and in most states of, of the United States, you're allowed to really talk about sex and really talk about HIV. And those performances, those, those uh, sharings are very much from the heart on the part of the 19, 20-year-olds. They're, they're telling their truth. They're telling their own real stories. They're not fictionalized. They also make skits and you know funny things and, and sing great songs and you know they're they're very entertaining. But the heart of the program is the sharing of real life experiences. And you know most of these come from you know just being prompted as 19, 20-year-olds in class to think what they would want to share with their younger selves. What do you wish you had known when you were 14 or 15 years old? Tell that story, share that. You know, so that's where that comes from. So when it comes to you know testing. You know, you can go into a, a ninth grade classroom and you can give a survey and find out what students know and what they feel and what their attitudes are and how much stigma they have about sex and sexuality. So you can measure those things before you ever come in to do a program and then you do it. And then you give that survey again. And then you, if you're really lucky, if you've got enough money, you do it again three months later and a year later, you see if you can make long-term change. Is it more difficult to advocate for change when it comes to HIV? Has it become more normalized? Do people just think, oh, that's an HIV AIDS thing. We don't need to, you know, focus on that. We don't need to give it too much attention. Has that become a, a problem or, or do people still take it as seriously as they should? Well, there's definitely some of what you were just alluding to, you know, the, the feeling of, oh, that was last year, or that was last decade. And, mm. you know, it's not so obvious to me now. And so I don't need to think about it. So there's some of that. But, you know, the way that, that we work at the Art and Global Health Center, the staff of the center and myself, the way that we work is to incorporate HIV information and stigma reduction within sexuality education. So it's comprehensive sexual health education that includes a look at HIV. And, you know, that's evergreen. Oh, you yes, know, that's not going to go away, Oh. That's not going to go away. No, it's not going to go away for old guys like me, but it's no. not going to go away for 14 and 15 year olds. That's for sure. No. Uh, and so, you know, the, the so reincorporation of it, that. You in, yeah, you integrate it into the by program and in, get it there. Yes, slip it in there so exactly. that uh, yes, it's it gets it gets the attention. Back to, to your story, David, and um, yeah, a return to India. And this is really uh, another moment in your life where things happened unexpectedly against the odds, um, but with a bit of a difference this time. Can you tell us about that? Well, during that time that I was living in San Francisco and writing for newspapers, uh, I, I collected, as you can imagine, all my notes and all the reviews that I had written and all of the chronicling that I had done of HIV and performance. And I ended up writing a dissertation about that for my PhD. And when I got to the end of that, which was a, a very rich and, and fulfilling experience, there was also a moment of, okay, I don't think I can do this anymore. I think that was you know, maybe as much as this one person can handle. 
thinking about art and AIDS. And then one day I was reading the paper and wouldn't you know, there was a story about Tamil Nadu, specifically about Chennai, which is the capital city of Tamil Nadu, and about a rise in HIV cases there. Mm-hmm. And I realized at that moment that my worlds were coming together. My San Francisco world, the 10 years of experience in, in exploring what was happening with HIV and performance, and my prior India world, the, the very state that had meant so much to me and friends who had meant so much to me. And so I got this idea in my head to find a way to go back to India. Uh, I did so on a Fulbright program and to use that as an opportunity to think about how artists of all kinds were intervening in the AIDS epidemic there and to see whether there could be some alliances built, some, some ways of collaborating between the good folks that I knew in San Francisco and New York and other major cities in the U.S., with people who were doing similar work, intervention work, as artists in India. So I went with my family. And, and significantly, I'm just going to mention this in passing, that at this point, I was married to my husband, Peter. Uh, we had adopted two children. We took the whole family with us. There we are in Bangalore. Oh, wow. People can't figure <laughs> out what to make of us. Who are they? What's going on here? Where's the mother? That was yeah. the question we kept getting over and over again. Where's the mother? Well, she's right here. <laughs> and how, but in any case, that, how, did, how did people respond to that? Because, I mean, India is a very, well, you, I know you can't generalize, but my experience in Tamil Nadu, very patriarchal, very, you know, this is women's roles, this is men's roles, this is how it's been for centuries, and this is how it always will be. It's, it's, it may be changing, but it's very slow. I mean, how did they respond to you? But we got the whole range of responses, you can imagine. You know, there were people in our, our artistic world who were like, yeah, great, you know, yeah, come for mm-hmm. dinner. And mm-hmm. then there were people who would definitely look at us askance. Um, and, you know, it, it's probably worth mentioning that my kids are black, uh, our kids, Peter's and mine together. And so they were kind of treated as though they were from the hill tribes or they were from some other place. And there was just <laughs> great confusion about all of it. But, you know, confusion is not a bad thing. You know, confusion yeah. is the beginning of, of, you know, understanding, too. So, you know, it was... We, we, well, confusion I, is most, really... So it must have been kind of breaking down those, those, those traditional barriers just to, to, to see you operating there in this totally unexpected um, family grouping. Yeah, well, you know, again, I think that what people were witnessing is that we were both mothering and fathering our children because we had to. You know, it was us. Uh, and, you know, there was... Maybe it was, for most people, it was the first experience of seeing a same-sex couple with children. But, you know, the same thing was true not so long ago in the U.S. So, you know, I I think it's just something you have to have experience of before you can go with the flow. But anyways, you know, that landed us in a a place where uh, I could meet artists who were doing intervention work right in Karnataka, in Bangalore, but also could easily travel to other cities around the country and met amazing people doing amazing things with puppetry, with dance, with film, with video, uh, music. And we finally decided we needed to get together in one place. And so against all odds, uh, we, we managed to have a meeting of ourselves. And we called ourselves the Make Art Stop AIDS group. That was the place where we, we coined the term, which partly came from the experience we were sharing together and partly came from a, a, an art theorist by the name of Douglas Crimp who had written an essay about making art to stop AIDS in the late 1980s. And so we were picking up his mantle and we were marching forward with it. 
and practicing uh, arts activism together and sharing our best practices with one another. That was a phenomenal moment. That was 2004. Uh, and it was on account of that that when I returned to the U.S., to my university in Los Angeles, that I started the Art and Global Health Center, which was basically taking forward the ideas that we had been exploring about things that art could do, things that art could accomplish, things that could be possible, especially, as I was saying before, in relation to stigma, banishing stigma. So out of this amazing meeting of minds, meeting of experiences, did new artistic expressions come out? Did you, did you find new ways of um, dealing with the issues in India? Or, I can't generalise, in Tamil Nadu? Well, I was working in the whole country at this point, and the, and the thing that immediately comes to mind that was a discovery for me is a, a television program that was being produced out of North India. Uh, and it was called Jasus Vijay, Detective Vijay. And it was this extraordinary uh, thing where, you know, the, the program was a kind of a, a, a procedural. You know, like every week there would be another crime committed and, and the detective would figure out the, the crime and who had committed it. And it was sometimes in village contexts and sometimes in city contexts in North India. But the reason for the program's being was that the detective would soon be revealed as HIV positive. Oh. And so it was the, the use of a, a, a technology or methodology that is known within the academic field, at least, as entertainment education. Mm -hmm. And it's specifically about you know, doing things like that, like creating a television program where over the course of the first weeks and months, we just learned to identify with a detective. We loved the show. We all... You know, people would, would gather together in villages and watch on a single screen. There'd be, in some cases, 100 and more people watching this program. And so at the end of a certain amount of time, there was a, a great love and affection for the detective. And then the HIV story comes up, and the there's a drop. rupture. The great, yeah, the great big, moment of reveal. That must have been... The reveal. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been and amazing it, to have been there to see the, the reaction. Well, the people who made the program, you know, they, they never released the exact figures because I think it was too scary from a media perspective, but they, they lost a lot of, of <laughs> viewership immediately. But, but the thing was that people loved him so much, this detective, that they came back. They came back. They couldn't resist they him. They came back. <laughs> and, and that was an, an amazing example of this banishing stigma idea that, you know, by yeah. going through this process and by developing affection and love and identification for this character, that people could be changed. They could change yeah. themselves. So that was one of the main discoveries. And, and that's a technology that I'm, I'm still really interested in, a methodology that I'm still really interested in and, and use and collaborate with people like PCI Media, which is a, a fantastic entertainment education group based in New York City. And actually, India has controlled its HIV epidemic pretty well, hasn't it? I mean, it, was, it had access to... Um, to antiretrovirals quite early on, if I, if I remember correctly, and, and makes its own in, in country. So they never had the problem yes. with, the, with the cost issue. Absolutely. And it's one of the joys of, of being involved with India and Indian culture is witnessing the ways that these medications then were created, uh, the generic medications that were, were done so cheaply and so well in India to save so many lives. And I will say that when I was doing this work, the early part of the work, 2004, thereabouts, uh, that at that point, there was no surveillance. There was no way to know how many people were infected in India. And there was a fear that it was going to overtake every other epidemic in the world. 
That didn't happen, as you point out, in part because of this, this early intervention and the early medical treatment that was provided to these antiretrovirals. As well as teaching and writing, um, today you're creating new projects that continue to combine art and advocacy. And one of the projects I'd like to just touch on is, is your recent project, Through Positive Eyes, which is an extraordinary collection of photos and stories. Um, can you tell us more about it and why it's important to you? Sure. Well, this one started with uh, an interaction with a man named Gideon Mendel, who's a South African photographer. He is a, a photo activist. He's an art photographer and an activist at the same time. And he had produced a book called A Broken Landscape of photographs of people living in sub-Saharan Africa, dealing with HIV. And he managed to, to create the images in this book in such a way that we were not made to feel pity for people living with HIV, but instead we're able to feel and see them in activist motion. And what an extraordinary thing that is. And he did it partly through the images and partly through the texts that accompany the images. First person texts that tell stories from the perspective of people living with HIV, that personalize them and help us to, to get connected and get close, feel the heart beating with them. So I tracked him down. I, I thought the work was so beautiful and it was so meaningful to my students. So I tracked him down. He was then living in London. He'd moved to London and had gotten married and had a couple of kids there. And I told him about the, the reaction that my students were, were, were having to his work and also my own reaction. And he was loving that, as artists do. I mean, nobody, nobody complains <laughs> when, when they hear that their work a... is effective. Yeah, everybody loves some encouragement and, and yes, some, some Yeah, you want to feel like what you do makes a difference in the world. And, you know, he, he had made a difference in, in my world here in Los Angeles. So anyways, we had this great conversation. At the end of it, uh, I said, would you consider, you know, coming to, to L.A. and working on a project with us here? And he said, yes, absolutely. And one reason he loved it was that so much focus has been on the experience of HIV in sub-Saharan Africa, especially in South Africa, which has the greatest number of cases in the world. Uh, and he wanted to, to, to turn the tables and he wanted to look at HIV in another place, which in our case was Los Angeles. Uh, there are parts of Los Angeles that have rates of infection that, that rival South Africa. He knew that. Uh, and so he arranged to come. We, we did a, a workshop with students, uh, basically, uh, you know, there were a dozen people living with HIV who were willing to have students follow along with them for a long weekend and take photographs and interview them. And somewhere in the middle of that experience, I started getting calls. I was kind of in the producer role. I started getting calls from the people who were uh, uh, doing the project with us, the HIV positive people, who would say, oh, we love your students. They're so wonderful. They're so thoughtful. They're taking such great photographs. Make them go away. <laughs> it's like, what, what, what do you mean make them go away? And it's like, well, they're driving us crazy because they're with us like every minute. They're not, they're not like giving us any space to breathe. <laughs> so, so we realized, Gideon and I, at that point, that really a better version of this project would be to give a camera to the person living with HIV and let them do it themselves and not feel like they were being followed or surveilled at all times. And so we, we devised a version of the project, which has been now running for a dozen years and more, where we, uh, we go to a city, it's best if we're invited to that city. And so usually it, it involves 
an invitation and a, and a, a collaboration with an organization for HIV-positive people in that city. Uh, we go through a 10-day training process. Uh, we give cameras to use. They're simple digital cameras, but they have very good lenses. And what results is a, a lot of, of close interaction with these folks. So there's a building of trust amongst all of us. And then the creation of beautiful, fresh, unique images that come from the eyes, through the eyes, through the positive eyes, which is the name of the project, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, of the people who are uh, sharing the project with us. And so uh, it's a combination of taking photographs and telling stories. We combine that material into videos and other kinds of presentations and exhibitions. And actually, all of this is visible online uh, at throughpositiveeyes.org. Uh, and we, we think of it as shareware. We love people to, to use the material in classrooms and community groups and in any way that it would be useful to anyone uh, so that the work of banishing stigma would move forward. The photographs are incredibly varied. I mean, there it ranges from self-portraits to close-ups of flowers to places that are important to the subjects. I mean, it, it's so varied. And then you read in the stories why that, what that picture means sometimes, and it's it's uh, it's very intriguing. Uh, and and it's continuing to grow. Yes, we've we've now been to more than a dozen cities. And just to give you a sense of the range, I mean, we, the first city we went to after L.A. was Mexico City and then Johannesburg and then Washington, D.C. and then Bangkok and Mumbai back in India, which was significant for me, and, and Port-au-Prince and Haiti and on and on. But most recently, we have been in Seattle, where the, the show, Through Positive Eyes show, was part of the Bill and Melinda Gates Discovery Center. Unfortunately, it was during COVID time. And so we never had the exhibition on the walls, but we actually worked with a fantastic group of people we call artivists. That is, people who are artists and activists at the same time, who've come through the project and gone through the training and produced these amazing photos and stories. And even though we were never able to assemble as a a group in the museum context, they did their work online. And they were invited to classrooms and community groups, and they told their stories and they showed their photos. And we... We had as vital an experience with them doing it in this way during COVID as we've had prior to this in physical spaces. Looking back, is there one moment in your life when you felt that the chances of success were really low or the chances of actually succeeding at something you'd set out to do were absolutely against the odds? Is there a moment that you can remember where you thought, I really don't know how I'm going to get myself out of this? Um, and what did it teach you? I find myself thinking about the desire in, in the case of Through Positive Eyes to visit people living with HIV in different cities and the struggle that it sometimes takes to make that happen. You know, there's always somebody who thinks, oh, you can't do that. It's not a good idea. Uh, there's no money for it. Uh, where you'll, you'll never find people who want to take photographs. And in each case we find that there are people who want to do it. And there is money if we ask in the right way and if we go to the right people. And that there are people who will take amazing photographs who maybe never had a camera in their hands before in their lives. So city by city, I feel like I've had that experience over and over again that you know we started out against all odds. It's not going to happen. And then sometime later, it does. 
crazily enough, the, the city that comes to mind that we have never been able to visit is Kiev in the Ukraine. Huh. And I bring this to mind because we made a, a wonderful contact with someone who was going to help us to do this work. Uh, she had seen our exhibition in South Africa. She was moved by it. She thought that the project should be in Kiev, that there was a Ukrainian story to tell. Uh, she was in touch with people living with HIV and organizations in Kiev. And that was the, the time when Russia was invading Crimea. And as a result, even though we kept, you know, massaging the idea and moving it forward over and over again, it became impossible to do it because of triage. The, the people who were living in Kiev had to attend to such dire matters that were happening right in front of their eyes. You know, th this is just to say that I recognize that sometimes it's not the right time. And sometimes there are other things to think about besides our project or about HIV even. Now, you know, let's think about people who are living with HIV in Ukraine and who are wondering where they're going to get their medication from, which is yeah. truly, you know, the, 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 the kind of worry that is coming to the forefront right now. It's a moment really to reflect on that and to hope that, you know, this will pass and that you will be able to get to Kiev and you will be able to reach those individuals who will take part in the project. Yeah, it's been fascinating talking to you today, David. Thank you so much for your time. Anybody who is interested, or I do hope that many of you will be interested in looking at the episode notes where you'll be able to see uh, the links to many of the pieces of work that David has been mentioning in the conversation today. It's been fantastic to talk to you, David. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jan. I really appreciate this time with you. Thank you so much for listening to Against the Odds. You can find more information and links in the podcast notes on unaids.org forward slash podcasts. Do please share and subscribe to this podcast as it really helps us reach our growing audience. The podcast is presented by me, Jan Powell. The senior producer for UNAIDS is Charlotte Sector. Original music by Ken Likravesh and Hugo Powell. Against the Odds is made by Powell Media for UNAIDS. AIDS.